Welcome to the Agent of Influence podcast with Nabil Hanan. I'm your host, Nabil Hanan, Managing Director at NetSpy. This is a podcast sponsored by NetSpy as a place to share best practices and trends in the world of cybersecurity and vulnerability management. Portions of this interview will appear in print on the NetSpy executive blog. To find out more, go to www.netspy.com slash agent of influence. This is an episode in a series of interviews with industry leaders and security gurus, and I'm really excited to have with me today, Randy Cater. Hi, Randy. Hello. Uh, Nice to be here. Randy is a seasoned security and risk executive with nearly four decades of experience. Randy began his security career while serving in the U.S. Army, and after leaving active duty, served in various roles of increasing responsibility within the defense and aerospace and financial services industries. His experience is evenly split between military, consulting, and leadership positions in commercial organizations, including 15 years in a chief security officer and chief information security officer role. Randy was awarded his CISSP in 1998 and has held numerous other professional certifications through the years, including the CGEIT, CISM, and CISA. Currently, Randy is the Vice President of Enterprise Security Risk Management for a third-party insurance administrator. When Randy isn't working, he enjoys spending time with his eight grandchildren and also loves spending time outdoors. So, Randy, let's get started. How did you get started with security? Well, well, as you mentioned in the intro, uh, it started in in the Army. I, I was in a communications position, and so it really started initially in in protecting our own communications. So this is traditional ComSec stuff in the military. And from there, um, the nature of the unit that I was in uh, moved me towards how how to collect intelligence and so really how to break into things. Um, Back then it was um, considerably less high tech. Uh, We were talking about communications intercept, physical taps, um, de- defeating building, you know, physical uh, intrusion detection systems, and the like. Um, and then from there, it it sort of evolved into flipping that around. How do you protect against someone like me? And uh, and and so it came full circle to the security management piece. And then after I left the military, I just followed that path into into industry. That's really great. And then. In terms of your your experience in the various different types of industries after the military, uh, what's your experience been like? What are some key differences and similarities um, across the different verticals you've been involved in? Well, um, again, as you as you mentioned in my intro, there's kind of two paths. One is a consulting path, and one is uh, a CSO CISO path. And in the latter, which is what I'm currently in. That's been primarily focused on, uh, most recently, on financial services or specifically insurance. Um, prior to that, it was defense and aerospace. And those two are vastly different. Um, defense and aerospace, of course, is, is heavily influenced by government regulation. Much of the information we deal with is, is uh, subject to the National Industrial Security Program, classified information, that sort of thing. So, so in a in situations like that where you're dealing with national security information, you have the force of law behind you. And so 
Um, I don't have to beg people to follow the law. Um, <laughs> they generally would do that. And, and of course, we were heavily audited. On the insurance side, uh, it, it's, it's ironic. A lot of these insurance companies have been around for 100 years or more. And, and they were just fairly slow in adopting technology, I believe. And, and so uh, security in many respects has kind of lagged even the technology. And so it's, it, it's been a challenge, like a lot of large companies that have been around, we deal with um, legacy uh, uh, software languages, l legacy systems, and, and you have to deal with them. You have to sort of get around them. Um, the other difference in, in insurance, or and this probably applies to any regulated industry, um, we are not at the top of the supply chain. And what that means is, when you're in the middle of the supply chain, um, you're being audited a lot by the folks, uh, your customers or clients, and you in turn have to audit your vendors. And so that's that's been, not that we didn't do that in defense and aerospace, but a lot of that was done for us by government entities. And so, uh, whereas now we're doing it, of course, ourselves. That makes a lot of sense. Would you say that the insurance and the financial services sector are pretty heavily driven by regulatory pressures that drive their security activities, or are they more proactive now? Well, I, I don't think that you are necessarily ex uh, mutually exclusive. Um, certainly in the insurance side, um, they are heavily driven by regulation. Um, a lot of the regulations are quite explicit about the need for uh, for you to exercise due diligence of your suppliers, your vendors. And so it, it's really the big, for us, the big insurance companies have to take it serious. And once they take it serious, that naturally flows down to us. And our executives certainly hear that. So in addition to all the audits, um, it's, it's a frequent topic between executives, uh, between our, our customers and, and my own company. So it's so there's there's much more emphasis certainly in the last five five years or so than I saw fifteen years ago. Well, that piques my curiosity too. Is what are some things that you have done that you find to be effective while communicating to executive leadership at the board around the importance of application security today? Uh, well. Let me take a step back uh, be, before we even dive into the application security. It's um, it's probably important to note that I came up, uh, especially in the military and, and defense and aerospace, in this um, sort of FUD mentality: the fear, uncertainty, and doubt. You scare people into doing yeah. the right thing, and and quite frankly, that doesn't work well, or I haven't found it to work well. And so we really do me personally and, and my team, certainly uh, function as risk managers. Um, and and so, so we really do view our role, one of our primary roles, is providing illumination to risk and, and communicating that up. Um, for me, I'm fortunate most of the companies I've been a CISO for are sort of mid-sized companies. And so we actually can have a senior executive 
uh, oversight committee or steering committee, whatever you want to call it. And, and, and I leverage them a lot, um, especially if you can get them to agree to certain uh, objectives or standards or metrics that they want to see, um, then they can do your work for you, right? Because they see uh, that we have to improve something and it goes down the operational path rather than the security guy said so. But I do believe in, in uh, uh, regular communication. I, I believe in the metrics and measuring things. Um, I, I think uh, I, I tend to tend to follow an 80-20 rule always. Um, and it's not that I don't care about the 20%, but I, I've seen too many times my peers have, have uh, set out to sort of boil the ocean and that'll just never work. It's, and, and, and in some respects, you kind of look uh, foolish, you know, quite frankly, to the business executives who, who, who realize sometimes, often, how unrealistic that, that goal is. And so you pick off chunks. Um, and that kind of leads me into the application security side of it. Um, I struggled in this area, as most people have. Um, I, I struggled to just get them to uh, regularly test their systems. Um, I'm, I'm having less trouble these days, and, and part of the reason for that is I first I first forced the business leaders and the IT leaders, shouldn't say forced, I got the business and IT leaders to decide uh, what their key platforms are. Again, this is so you don't boil the ocean. What's the top five or 10 or whatever the right number is, whatever uh, sort of appetite the organization has, um, you get them to designate what the key platforms are. Um, in my current organization, um, they've designated 30 internal platforms as, as being key platforms. And the reason that's important is because then you can start reporting metrics on it. And this is where I can, I can start reporting on on the posture of that application platform. It could be, you know, has it been uh, tested dynamically, statically? Uh, does it have logging capabilities or logs being shipped to the SIM? Um, you know, vulnerability or malware protection on it, DLP, whatever, whatever the security capabilities are that are, are of interest to you, resiliency is another one, you can report on them. And it can be as simple as a, a red, yellow, green. Uh, typically, that's what I do. Um, and it, because I think, I think there's a danger in trying to be too precise with things. Um, as as I, I once heard, it gives, sometimes we throw figures out that give the illusion of precision really where none exists. And so it's good enough to have red, yellow, green. Um, if something goes from green to yellow, and you're talking to an, uh, an EVP, they're going to want to know why. <laughs> and they're going to want to solve that problem. It drives and, the conversation, at least. Exactly, exactly. And, and, and even, even if they decide to accept the risk, they're aware of it. And, and as you pointed out, um, they've had a conversation about it. They, they, they have a better understanding of what the issue is. And, and you know, generally, I think people do the right thing. Um, or at least, you know, maybe it's, uh, maybe it's uh, sort of preparing the organization for 
uh, financial forecast for the following year. This is a big lift. We have to, we'll do this in, in 21. And so, so maintaining that communication is, is important. And, and, and that's really, certainly I, I, last five years, 10 years or so, um, I've begun sort of triple, triple testing, uh, uh, a triple testing program. And by that, I mean, I do the network, sort of the, the, the low level scanning stuff. But on the application side, I use both dynamic and static. Um, testing, mm -hmm. and that that is beginning to bear fruit. It's taken a while, but it's beginning to bear fruit. Um, certainly, uh, if an application, and I've got one in, about to go live now that that went through uh, static testing and had one of the best reports I've ever seen, and they really made a conscious effort to try and not have any flaws at the end, and. Uh, and it it appears that the dynamic test is going to validate that, and so so it's uh, so the testing testing rigorous testing is important to me. Getting uh, getting the developers at least aware of secure coding technologies. Uh, certainly, if they're web developers, if they don't know OWASP, then you need to look for another developer. You know, it's <laughs> it's that simple. Yeah. Um, it's uh, so. So it's those three things. It's the rigorous testing. It's it's making sure the developers um, are aware of uh, secure coding practices, and then treating the platform as a key asset and reporting on its posture to the executives. Yeah, you touched on something very interesting, and we we definitely see eye to eye on this. The fact that dynamic testing and static and code review definitely go hand in hand are, and are very complementary to each other. Um, and ultimately, to have a proper secure SDLC, you need to leverage both just at the right phases of the SDLC to make sure you're catching the appropriate things uh, at the appropriate time and fixing them as well. Um, another thing that you mentioned that I, I really liked was the difference between, I think, a measurement and a metric. Uh, you mentioned things that were truly metrics that you were sharing, and they are not uh, measurements. I find it in many cases people confuse the two, and you know, measurement being like the number of cups of coffee I had today uh, right. versus you know my actual the ratio to my BMI to my caffeine intake is the metric that maybe I should be monitoring instead of counting the number of cups of coffee because uh, they may not give me an accurate picture. So I think it's, it's, it was very great, good to hear from you some of those examples of metrics that you've shared and you found effective. Uh, you touched mm -hmm. on a little bit regarding malware uh, as well. I'd be curious if you have any advice um, for our audience on techniques that you found to be effective or just ways to better manage malware and ransomware? Okay, um, let me comment, make one final comment on, sure. on your remarks. Um, for me, the best measure, whether it's a measurement metric, red, yellow, green, however you're gonna convey uh, the message, um, I think it's really important that that the executive audience that you're trying to target um, has a hand in crafting what those are. E each one has their own um, their own level of understanding, their own um, their own hot hot points. You know the things that that push their buttons. And so probably half the things that I measure or report on 
are things that the executives have said, I want to see that. Um, and, and so th that, that gets a lot of buy-in and it, it sort of adds some value to, to what it is you're reporting. So that was my, uh, my final comment on your remarks. Not only that, but you also mentioned that the maturity of your security capabilities will also help drive the maturity of the metrics that you can gather and report on sure, as well. Sure, sure. And, and, and caution people about not trying to be too precise. Um, directionally correct is usually good enough. Um, and, and so, uh, be, because you can spend a lot of, a lot of cycles trying to get precise when it's just not required. Yeah, using your 80, 20 principle, right? 20% of your issues give you exactly. 80% of your headaches. So let's focus on those 20%. Uh, exactly. Exactly. Um, now on the malware side, so, so this is something, and, and I'm, I'm almost reluctant to say this because anytime a, a security person says, I, I think I've done well, um, someone wants to attack <laughs> and then prove them wrong. Um, the reality is, is um, you know, five, five to 10 years ago, five to eight years ago, I saw a lot of malware, particularly ransomware. And of course, it's real prevalent in, you know, in industry today, but I don't see it hardly at all in our network. Um, and, and, and I believe the reason I don't is because we really did buy into this layered defense notion. We send users, all, all user traffic uh, through Zscaler and there are other services out there, but um, we happen to use Zscaler. And so they're essentially a proxy. Um, they catch a lot of stuff. And so that just takes, takes it right off the uh, right off the table from, from a user browsing standpoint. From an email standpoint, um, we, we have, uh, we're an 0365 shop, so we get some, you know, a fair amount of help from, from Microsoft in that regard. Um, but we also have uh, uh, Firepower, the, the old Mandiant um, uh, uh, firewall module, uh, that does a pretty decent job. We use FireEye, which is another uh, a gateway, and and Semantic and Trend is in the environment, and and so there really is protections at multiple points, multiple layers. So if something does, for example, uh, sneak through, someone clicks a link in in an email, um, it it may compromise that box. It's possible, and and we'd reimage it, but usually. Um, communications out, command and control calls and, and the like get blocked. Mm -hmm. And and so so we see it, we see it right away. We isolate that system, make sure that it's clean and kind of no harm, no foul. Um, the agentless stuff is a little more problematic, but again, I I I certainly think having visibility into your environment is critical. And as long as you can see this stuff, um, you can react and 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 so so I've had great luck with malware. I have not had a a, a ransom a successful ransomware in, in about five years. Mm -hmm. So fingers crossed. Fingers crossed. Let's hope that doesn't happen anytime soon. What are your thoughts then in terms of continuously monitoring and assessing your actual infrastructure's perimeter for security vulnerabilities? Um, we, we do that quite aggressively, and, and, and I know I've, I've been around long enough to know the debate about uh, 
insider threats uh, cause more financial damage, et cetera, blah, blah, blah. I, I, I get that. Um, one can argue the particular uh, facts and figures they're using, but at least in a regulated industry, um, our threat is absolutely on our perimeter. Um, I, I've been involved in a couple of breaches in my career, and in both cases, the company got themselves in trouble because, well, quite frankly, they were negligent. Um, mm -hmm. in, in the last one, um, they were aware of a big vulnerability on their perimeter and chose to do nothing about it for several years. And not surprisingly, someone came in through there. Um, there's kind of, that's an indefensible position to be in after a breach. Um, if, if, if the Bureau or, or FTC or uh, some regulatory agency knocks on your door and starts asking you these questions, there's just no defense to that. And so um, I, I think, I think the, the bar is much higher for the perimeter. You got to do the perimeter right. Um, most people accept that at some level, I, I think you have a hard, crunchy exterior and, and at some level, a soft, chewy center. The, <laughs> the, the, the goal is to sort of make it less soft and chewable as time goes, but you got to get the perimeter right. Otherwise, you know, it's, it's pointless. It's a moot point. And that example highlights the fact that given enough time, uh, attackers out there will find these vulnerabilities and they're usually looking for the weakest links. So if you have something obvious outside in your network and that's exposed, attackers are going to look there first instead of trying to find new and novel vulnerabilities somewhere else. And, and that's a great point. And that's, you know, go, going back to defense and aerospace versus what I'm doing now, uh, defense and aerospace, you had these very committed, I mean, it was the defense company that was targeted and you're targeted by, by foreign intelligence services. So they just sit and pound on the same target. Now, um, it's less of that specific targeting and more of targets of opportunity. And so, you know, the old adage, you don't have to be faster than the bear, you have to be faster than your, your friend. Um, same thing is true here. Um, I don't have to be able to withstand a foreign intelligence service I just need to make sure that we're not an attractive target because of something showing on our perimeter. Yeah, exactly. So a little interesting fact about you, you happen to have a physical copy of the Rainbow Series. Can you tell us a little bit more about what that is and how you actually managed to acquire a physical copy? Sure. Um, uh, the, the series itself is, is a set of uh, defense standards um, that were... I think last updated in the mid eighties or so. And that's, I think where I first ran into them was, was in the military. Um, when I got out in the early nineties off active duty and went into defense and aerospace, um, they were the Bible there, uh, there, there were no other regulations around it. Um, today we have, uh, uh, NIST, the NIST special publications, which are in many respects, a much more evolved version of what the Rainbow Series was. The Rainbow Series got its name uh, because each of the standards had a different color. And, 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 and just to clarify, I don't have the entire set. I don't even know how many are in <laughs> the entire set. Um, but I have 
15 or 20 of them, and mm -hmm. certainly the ones that I, I used uh, most. But all of them had this colored cover, literally. Um, the orange book, which is probably the one most people are familiar with, I think it might even still be on the CISSB exam. The orange book has essentially been replaced by NIST uh, Special Pub 800-53. Um, and and uh, it literally had an orange cover. And so um, I think in the early 90s, as, as uh, they kind of became obsolete, um, the company I was working for simply had no need to keep them. Um, and I had a, an affinity towards them. I liked them. Um, <laughs> I, I like, uh, you know, calling it the orange book and not SP 800-53. So, um, so I kept, I kept a copy through all these years. And now I, I find as I talk to some people, um, I, I'm realizing that's a bit of a treasure. I'm going to hold on to those. Um, no, they, absolutely. They, they might be worth some money someday. <laughs> I think they will be. So, so shifting gears a little bit, we talked about your eight grandchildren earlier. And first of all, happy birthday to the youngest one. I believe uh, they turned one today. So happy Lucy. birthday to them. Yeah, Lucy turns one. So let's talk a little bit about your, your plans uh, and things you're planning on doing with them. You are currently in the process of closing on uh, a retirement home for yourself. So what are some plans after uh, you close on that deal? Well, um, it, it's important to know that the retirement home ha happens to be adjacent to my grandmother's property, and my grandmother just turned 98. Oh, and, congratulations uh, to her. And she's still up and moving, and she still lives in the property she grew up on, which is uh, 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 right, right about 700 feet of lakeshore property. And so it's beautiful. As a kid, I used to go up there all the time. Um, when I was a kid... The place I'm buying was actually a general store, literally. It was mm -hmm. built in 1937, and it was the general store. I remember as a kid going in there with a quarter and buying a whole sack full of candy. So um, so we're, we're very happy to be right near um, my grandmother, and my dad lives a uh, mile down the road. So it's, it's uh, very family-centric. Uh, uh, Graham, as I said, lives along the lake, and so that's our lake access. And she's got 700 feet of lakeshore and, and nine acres. Oh, wow, uh, that's fantastic. So so uh, split evenly along the lake and, and on the other side of the road. But And so a wonderful place for grandkids to play. I've got uh, a number of grandkids who are just fanatical fishermen, um, yeah, uh, and they're cute, cute as a button, uh, 10 and 8. But... but they can't wait for us to buy it so that they can fish. And we have a pontoon boat. And, and so it's, it's just a wonderful place for the kids to play, whatever they want to do, um, except gaming. There's not a the, – the <laughs> Internet connectivity up there is, is uh, a little sparse. So. That's going to be a good thing, actually. Yeah. Uh, let's hope. It'll force the kids out, out, outdoors. So um, – Certainly, I will never run out of things I like to do up there. Um, you know, I, I, I'm big into kind of the logging side of it. Not, not truly logging, but I love my chainsaw work. That's literally my, my happy place is chopping mm -hmm. wood or, or, or cutting wood. So um, it, it's really, that's what I'm going to do. I, I spend as much time as I can with the kids up there. 
I spend as much time as I can on the lake um, and just enjoy kind of the tranquility of the place. Well, you know, given current times too, I think that would be really nice um, for, for your whole family to get some additional space and familiar territory to spend time together and enjoy the outdoors and the quiet, especially with weather also starting to, to get better now. Yeah, so that's yeah, really, exactly. must be really exciting. I'm very jealous. Yeah, it's, well, and, and to be fair, um, uh, my other half is, is gets to work from home 100% of the time. So she's going to be working from up there. Um, I'm going to have to split my time between the Twin Cities. So, <laughs> so um, I, I won't be up there full time for another uh, some number of years, but, uh, but I'll be up there as much as I certainly can. That's fantastic. Well, Randy, thank you so much for your time. This has been fun and exciting and very informative. I look forward to meeting up with you once all this pandemic comes to an end. I, I'd like that. I'd like thank that. you, Randy. Take care. Take care. This has been an Agent of Influence podcast with Nabil Hanan. Portions of this interview can be found in print on the NetSpy Executive blog. And please subscribe for future episodes of Agent of Influence at www.netspy.com slash agent of influence.